Do what you love. Love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. There are plenty of mantras about how to approach one's career. Today, I speak with Jonathan Molesic about finding meaning in our work. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Let me start by saying John's been busy writing, teaching, and teaching others how to teach. He's had numerous articles in academic journals, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and has received grants for his teaching and research on work from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Louisville Institute. He teaches theology at King's College and has published multiple books. He also has played the role of director of their Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching from 2011 until just this past semester. John will share more in this episode about why there's going to be a change for him this coming semester. But it certainly isn't because he doesn't have much to contribute in the field of teaching and learning. I know that there was at least one thing that got left out of your bio that you thought might be relevant to today's conversation. Yes. Uh, This is not something that I typically list on my CV as previous employment, uh, but the last job I had right before becoming a college professor in 2005 uh, was as a parking lot attendant. I graduated with my PhD from the University of Virginia in 2004 and was out of work for a few months and uh, eventually got a job working at the corner parking lot, which is this really kind of awesome parking lot uh, right across uh, the street from Thomas Jefferson's Rotunda. And it it was a great job. I learned a lot working as a parking lot attendant. Um, I think it's made me a better worker and actually a better person. In fact, this parking lot was featured in an independent documentary a few years ago called The Parking Lot Movie by Megan Ekman. And I appear in it very, very briefly at the end and I, I kind of I have really weird hair for some reason in in that in that scene. I'm gonna have to watch it and see if I can spot you because of course we've never met in person, but I've seen your profile picture, so I'll see if I can do it. It'll be one of those where's Waldo, but it'll be where's John yeah. in this. Where this is way. John underneath this gigantic shaggy mop of hair um, at the end of this movie? What was that like for people when you would meet them? Because I because one of the things that really strikes me is how much our identity is wrapped up in the work that we do. And especially right. in academia, I mean, we're very important, aren't we? And so that must have been oh, yeah. for people knowing you had attained that level of education and knowing perhaps what you had hoped to pursue. What Was there some sort of an evolution in your thinking and reflecting as you went along? And also, I should ask how long you worked for the parking lot. Yeah, I worked there for a year. Uh, and it it wasn't that unusual for people with master's degrees and, and even PhDs to work at that parking lot. Um, there were a number of other graduate students um, who worked there at the time that I did. Uh, 
certainly among the workers, it wasn't, you know, especially weird. Um, Among the patrons, some of them um, were surprised to learn, what, you have a PhD, you know? Um, uh, But I I don't know, the the patrons who um, I got to know and who I really liked were, of course, sort of just cool with it. I was just that guy who worked in the parking lot and, you know, uh, would chat with them on their lunch hour. Um, But the thing is that it was a really good job. Um, And it was a job that uh, allowed me to pursue a lot of my intellectual interests. It it was kind of a great postdoc in some sense. It, it, for one thing, the job was really easy. (laughs) Um, My job was just to take money from people and chat with them if, you know, they want to chat and occasionally deal with, uh, you know, irate customers who don't really want to pay for their parking. Um, but apart from that, the job did not tax my brain very much. There was a lot of downtime. Um, so I could read, I could write. Um, I got the idea for my first book, um, in the parking lot really, uh, through a conversation with one of my former professors. Um, and I could go home after a shift and, not really be tired. I'd be like, Oh, you know, I don't feel mentally exhausted. I can, I can go and and live a normal life now. I've certainly been following you on Twitter for a while, or at least had you on my higher ed list and can remember some of our conversations. And you've given me some Mm -hmm. positive feedback about the podcast and such. But one of the things that really, really caught my eye is this Venn diagram. And it's one of those Uh that is so brilliant, but a little tough for us to describe out loud, but we're going to give it a go. So I'm familiar with a lot of people have seen the three circle Venn diagram about our careers. And so we find stuff we're good at, but we also make sure it's stuff we're passionate about. And then it's also stuff people will pay us for. And I will be quite candid with you, John. I've talked about this in a lot of my classes and I think I'm pretty uh behind it, but you've started to crackle away my perceptions in a really good way <laughs> but but I, oh, I'll, I'll just tell you up front I mean, I've been this is this Venn diagram has been drawn on many introduction to business courses oh, whiteboard wow. so that those are the three that come together and then in the center that's what we're aiming for and I think about mm-hmm. my own role teaching in higher ed it's something I do love doing and it's something that mm-hmm. I have skills to do and that I'm paid for and this is all good. It all comes together. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I hit the the triple trifecta. And now we've started to see some models where a fourth element gets added in. It's kind of the social responsibility element of the world right. needs it. That's the Venn diagram that you described has just been going crazy over Twitter and social media. So we have these four bubbles coming together and then there are the four intersections. Do you want to talk about those or you want me to take a crack at those, the mission, vocation, profession, and passion? The version of this Venn diagram that I had kind of seen most recently and decided to, you know, like you say, kind of undermine a little bit <laughs> uh, was, yeah, those four overlapping circles, like you described as, you know, you love it, you're great at it, you're paid for it, the world needs it. And if in the space where two of those things overlap, you have your passion, you have your mission, you know, your vocation or your profession. Mm -hmm. So for, for example, if you're great at something and you love it, then, well, that's, that's your passion. Um, But you're not necessarily paid for it. And it's not necessarily something that the world needs. Uh, I can think about 
I don't know, for me, um, playing ice hockey. I've played hockey since I was a little kid growing up in Buffalo, and I love it. I wouldn't say I'm great at it, but um, I'm, I'm sort of good enough that it's, it's fun. Um, and yeah, that's a passion for mine. I'm certainly not a professional, and certainly the world does not need me to play hockey. Um, and likewise, you know, if you're really good at something and you're paid for it, well, that must be your profession and so on. Um, and have you incorporated those kind of spaces where only two of those circles overlap uh, in your teaching? Not, not in my teaching necessarily. I would say that early on my first job, very, very first job as a 14-year-old <laughs> was to work oh, uh-huh. at, at Baskin-Robbins. And I would say uh-huh. that's not going to be that the world needs it, although the world loves it, but the world doesn't right. necessarily <laughs> need it. I was pretty good at it. I used to play a game in my mind to to see if I could memorize people's orders, and I kind of would make it go with their personalities. And I loved just the delight that someone would have that you would know their order. And I also used to try to serve twice as many customers as anyone else would. So oh, wow. there, there, but I had a passion for it. I was good at it. I wasn't really particularly paid that well for it. So, but I was, mm-hmm. I mean, I was paid. I was 14, have a job. I've been working ever since. Sure. So it's not too bad. But yeah. I would say the and world. Even then. Yeah. The world. Even probably. then, you know, you were, you were productive. You were, you know, committed to it, you know, just as, as today. So. Yeah. One thing that, and we'll, of course, dive a lot more into this, but one thing that started to put a crackle is just as I've reflected on the articles that you're going to touch on today and done my homework for today's conversation, I really look back and go, well, you have been completely privileged and you've had a -hmm. job since the age of 14. It was never a problem getting a job. I didn't Mm -hmm. have to go to multiple places. It was like, oh, I want to work at Baskin Robbins. And I worked there and I want to work at the YMCA and I worked there. And Mm -hmm. when I graduated, I interviewed at one place and got a job Uh and got to make more money than people who were graduating and going on to work for public accounting firms. It's all been good. And even my darkest days in my career, I was laid off after working for the same company for more than 11 years. And it was a sudden Mm -hmm. thing. And really devastating for me. Even then, though, as devastated as I was, and as much as I realized my whole identity was wrapped up in what was on the business card, I still ended Mm -hmm. up doing consulting the very next. I mean, people were calling me saying, hey, come and talk to us. And I ended up Mm -hmm. being so terrified of not having a regular paycheck, but making more money than I'd ever made in my life. So I, I sensed this real great sense of privilege that I've had in my career that is not in common with other people. Yeah. And um, I think that as you know, you, you touched just now on uh, that sense of uh, uncertainty that you had as a consultant um, and, you know, people who study labor from a social scientific perspective or something like that uh, often talk about precarity, that state of being precarious, of ha- having your next paycheck be a little bit uncertain on the one hand, there are people who are perhaps highly paid consultants who, yeah, they might not know when their next job is going to be, but they can be fairly confident that when it comes around, they'll be paid pretty well and they'll be able to cover their bills without much trouble. Uh, And then on the other end, though, and we very much see this in higher ed with uh, part-time and adjunct faculty who also have a similar sense of uncertainty about where the next paycheck is coming from, but 
they aren't necessarily going to be paid so much and, and have a lot to worry about in terms of what their uh, of their financial security. Yeah, I worked as an adjunct for a year before mm-hmm. attaining a full time. But even then, I know I can't relate because it was a hobby. Yeah. I had the job, the consulting that paid the bills. And then that's what I did at night for fun. <laughs> it was right. not something that paid yeah. enough to pay the bills. And certainly, you know, we read uh, and, and speak with a lot of people who rightly point out the problem of a lot of adjuncts who are not being paid in proportion to, uh, you know, the amount of skill and passion uh, and ability that they bring to their jobs. But I think it, it probably is worth remembering that not everyone who is being, yeah, I mean, there are people like, like you were, or yeah, there's certainly on, on my campus, plenty of local teachers or local business people who teach one class a semester in the evening. And I don't think that they feel exploited, but at the same time, there are lots of people for whom, you know, adjunct teaching might be their best source of income. And I know I have a, a person I'm connected with that I won't be any specific on details to protect confidentiality, uh-huh. but this individual, we talk pretty regularly about this person wants to have the opportunity to be full-time. Right. And so how do you know, should they say yes to the opportunity, the class that now has a hole in it for this next semester and they really need the person to do it? But then if you keep saying yes, at some point you've trained them that oh, no, they don't really ever need to make you full time. It's a really, that's a, that is a really, really point of tension and a difficult course to navigate. And, and that kind of gets at one of those areas that is not always labeled on that Venn diagram that we often see about trying to find our purpose. You can do work that you love. And I think that that is what most college faculty would say, like, yeah, I, I love teaching. I love doing research. Um, there are even a few who would say, I love committee meetings. Um, and, you know, we're a workforce that is typically, you know, we're, we're pretty high trained. We are committed to doing our jobs really well. The world absolutely needs the work that we do. Um, higher education is something that that a lot of people need and they want. But it's hard sometimes for so many in higher education to be paid adequately for that work. So you can get three of those things to add up. You know, you're good at it. You love it. The world needs it. But if you're not paid appropriately for it, then we start to get into the territory where you're doing this great work, but you're not really being treated with the dignity and the respect that is rightfully yours. The diagram that you created was, again, based on these four bubbles coming together. Bubbles. Right. <laughs> I believe they're called I circles. Like the I, I, I like the idea of them bubbles. <laughs> Can you tell I've been around toddlers all morning? <laughs> <laughs> they're also called circles. At any rate, you had these overlapping areas that aren't filled in in the original, right. but that you filled in. So you just started to get at the one you're good at it. You love it. You filled in that bubble with exploitation. I wanted to share the few other ones. There's the one where you love it and the world needs it. And you can be paid for it, which is all great. But if you're not good at it, then there are certain jobs that you shouldn't have. Like for instance, (laughs) don't 
go into medicine. If yes, please. <laughs> you love medicine, obviously the world needs medicine. You can be paid to do it, but please don't be my doctor mm-hmm. if you're not actually good at it. That's something to worry about, I think. And yeah, I had another one where if you love it and you're good at it and you can be paid for it, but the world doesn't need it, then you might be a Kardashian. Yes. For example. <laughs> what kinds of things come to mind for you when you hear people talking about pursuing success and specifically in academia? What does that look like? And what are some of the dangers of us pursuing success in academia? Yeah. Uh, well, success, there's a kind of stereotypical vision of academic success that I think we're all taught explicitly and implicitly in graduate school, which is that success equals getting a particular kind of job uh, as soon out of graduate school as possible. And that job ideally would be a job where there's very little teaching, there's a lot of research support, you know, the, the very prestigious kind of position that is labeled as a kind of success. Certainly getting a lot of publication is considered success. And I mean, I'll say that I totally bought into that in graduate school. I was never really shown any other version of success, I would say. And for the past decade, I've been teaching at a small uh, liberal arts college in northeastern Pennsylvania, and I do a lot of teaching. And here, success is, is somewhat different. Certainly, publication is, is valued at the college, but uh, day in and day out, my first concern is for teaching the 80 to 100 students who you know, we typically have in, in four courses uh, during a semester. And so I have had to learn over time to see uh, succeeding as a teacher, to see my success not in terms of just you know, getting a grant, getting a publication or something like that, but also in seeing students learn and making sure uh, that they learn, not making sure in like the you know, nasty way, like you kids, you're going to learn, but you know, in a kind of assessment way, you know, being sure, ah, yes, they really did learn and here's how I know that. And that's the kind of success that is not usually very public. The front page of the newspaper is not going to list the people who had the, the whose students uh, had the best learning outcomes in a given semester. The front page might list, oh, Professor So-and-so won a $5 million grant. Which one gives you more of a sense of meaning? Uh, um, for me, it's, it's really both, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mean you're not going to allow me to put you into a false dichotomy? <laughs> <laughs> right. well, no, you must choose A or B. <laughs> <laughs> I want to add one or two additional oh, good. Uh, uh, elements to that, which would be, you know, for my work over the last several years in faculty development, getting to work with my colleagues and to uh, see them get excited about becoming better teachers. That's very gratifying. Even, I would say, uh, doing committee work and being a good institutional citizen can also be very gratifying and, and provide a lot of meaning. I think that what ties all of these things together 
and this is, you know, if there's like a thesis to what I want to, to say on this uh, podcast, it's that the best productivity tool that we have as faculty is not a technology. It's not software. Uh, it's our personal self-investment in our work. It's our commitment to students. It's our commitment to research. It's our commitment to our institution. We are in the great privileged position, as you already mentioned, to be able to do what we love. Uh, and for the most part, we have a culture that really supports and encourages us doing what we love. But there is a big downside to all of this, which is that that commitment, uh, that high level of self-investment that we have in our work also opens us up to gigantic pitfalls. Uh, we already talked a little bit about the uh, possibility of exploitation uh, for you know, part-time faculty. Uh, but an, another one would be, I'd say, overcommitment and ultimately burnout, um, that we can be so committed to our work that we eventually start to hate it, <laughs> uh, that it, it overwhelms us. And you know, we have identified ourselves so strongly with it uh, that that actually becomes too much of a burden for uh, our work. I'm sure you have seen that with colleagues and maybe perhaps with yourself. Do you want to give an example oh, yeah. of, of that without, of course, using names? Or if it's you, you'll have to say, I have a friend and then put your, your air quotes up. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. That's like, you know, you always see on Twitter, you know, I'm asking for a friend. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can say that this, this past academic year, and especially this past semester, I, I don't think I was at my very best um, at my job. Uh, for really the first time, uh, I began to feel burnt out. For most of my career, I've never really enjoyed turning papers around really quickly and getting the back to students graded, but I never really struggled with grading papers in a timely fashion. And this past year, and especially this past semester, was the first time where I would let, you know, stacks of papers, well, really electronic stacks of papers, but you get the idea, um, let those papers sit for weeks and weeks and not want to touch them. And there's a lot of guilt uh, would build up in me. I was like, oh, I have to go and face those students, and I know that they want their papers back, and I don't have them ready, and I already told them that they'd be back in a week and it's already two weeks now. And that kind of guilt, well, I mean, ultimately it's bad for me. <laughs> it's bad for all of us to feel that way about our work. If it's, you know, maybe there's just the right amount of guilt that can motivate us to do a good job, but this I think had, had gone too far. And the kind of funny part about this was at the end of this past semester, I told one of my classes, after they had turned in their course evaluation, so that I knew that this would not affect their evaluation of me. Well, I gave them my self-evaluation and I said, you know, I think that this was just about the worst job I've done in my career. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I did a really good job of teaching uh, this semester. And what surprised me was that even though I felt so much guilt over not getting their papers back to them in time, over not having, you know, just the right 
activity for them to do in class. And for maybe relying on, you know, just a sort of rambling lecture a little too much. The student's reaction was to ask me, what, what are you talking about? What, like, we thought you did fine. We didn't see any, you know, it didn't seem like anything, anything wrong um, with the way you taught. So on the one hand, I really do believe that I did not do the best job. I was not as effective as I should have been and could have been this past semester. But at the same time, I recognize that students' evaluation of us and students' learning doesn't necessarily match up very well with our evaluation of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one way you could call that the, the sort of subjective and objective uh, effects of our work. And I think these are two ways that we can find our work meaningful. We can find it meaningful subjectively. I feel good about it. Uh, it, it is meaningful to me. It helps me become uh, a better and more effective person. But then there's also the objective, which is, well, what's your product? And for college faculty, the product is exists in someone else's brain. It's, it's someone else's learning. Uh, and those things don't always match up the way that you expect them to. The other interesting thing to me about that it exists in someone else is that in some ways there's a time release aspect to it. (laughs) They they aren't necessarily, I mean, I certainly wasn't when I was in college able to embrace the value of what I was receiving at the time. And one of the things that helps me think about my teaching in a little bit better perspective, this is on a good day, is to Mm -hmm. realize I'm not the only input There are a lot of people across the campus who are shaping these students' lives, who are contributing to their learning, and there's no way it could be all me, this one class, or or what have you. And that tends to, like I said, on a good day, just help me realize there's a much bigger picture at work here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that this is a place where maybe uh, the the work ethic of the parking lot uh, can help out. Um, Yeah, I could leave the parking lot and forget about it until my next shift. I never took my work home with me there. But uh, surprisingly, there is actually a lot of collaboration, um, asynchronous collaboration, I would say, mm. uh, between the, you know, the day shift and the night shift. Uh, in the, whatever I did during the day shift would affect the guy who comes in for the night shift. And I say the guy because we were like all guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and if someone does a really good job on the night shift, that makes things easier for the next person. Um, and I think that this is something that, I think that this is a, this idea of collaboration is potentially a great source of meaning uh, for college faculty. We don't look like collaborators. We don't um, always work side by side, but yeah, like you said, in the student's mind, what happens in their 10 o'clock class and what happens in their 11 o'clock class can build on each other or they could totally conflict. Uh, And this is a point where I think that good collegiality and good faculty development programs can help a faculty to, as a whole, do a better job uh, through the, the small contributions of each individual faculty member. I'd love for you to picture me for a minute in my classroom and you're going to replace the scene that used to be there. And the scene that used to be there was find something you love, find something you're good at that you'll be paid for and problem solved. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> now you've got your perfectly packaged career. What what conversation should replace that? Or or I guess maybe how could we be more aware of its limitations? What you described is definitely that has been me at times. I have tried to convince my students to, you know, follow your passions and, and all of this. I actually think that that center part of the Venn diagram where we are doing what we love and, you know, we're good at it and, you know, the world needs it and we can be paid for it. That's still something worth hoping for. Um, it, it should be a, a, a kind of goal, but I think it would be, it's important to tell students. And I think it's probably important for us as faculty to recognize too, that that's uh, not always attainable uh, and that there's a lot of meaning well, two things. First, there's there's a lot of pain that can go into the pursuit of that and sometimes the unfulfilled pursuit of that goal. Uh, and second of all, that there's a lot of meaning to be had in our work, even if we don't hit that sweet spot. Um, even if any of a number of factors prevent us from finding that, you know, sort of meritocratic purpose. Um, you know, there's for, for the person who has been struggling to get paid uh, well for their work teaching uh, in a college or university, stumbling into work that they can be paid really well for, well for, even if it's not what they went to graduate school for, that's pretty meaningful. Sometimes, too, all of us, myself very much included, are not aware of what it is that we're limiting ourselves by. And I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a wonderful episode that This American Life did a couple of years ago, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And one of their stories was around a community that has the highest rate of disability claims in the country. Mm. And I won't go into the broader theme of the story, but one woman in particular who was interviewed is burned into my soul. And uh -huh. they were interviewing her about what her dream job was. She said, mm -hmm. I uh, would love to work at the disability office. That was her dream job. Right. The person interviewing her thought that the reason why she wanted that job was because she knew what it would be like. She could be empathetic to the clients mm -hmm. who would come in and would maybe need help or questions answered. And it turns out that's the only job she had ever heard of where you got to sit down while you worked. Right. Right. And there has to be in all of our lives, some limitations we've made on ourselves because we just didn't know what else might be possible. Right. And Absolutely. So yeah. I think that that's, that's something else that graduate school probably teaches us is that, you know, this is it. You can, you know, especially if you're like me, I mean, my PhD is in religious studies, right? Um, and the only people I saw with PhDs in religious studies were my professors. So, of course, I guess I should become one of them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you get a lot of students who say that they want to be college professors, too. But I, I'm in this weird situation when students express an interest in graduate school, particularly graduate school you know, in, in, say, an MA program as opposed to you know, an MBA or something like that. And they said, yeah, you know, I want to, I, I want to be a college professor. On the one hand, like, great. That is a great thing to be, you know, it's, it's flattering 
And obviously here I am, I am one. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I kind of want to warn them and say, ah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty tough road. Uh, and there is a lot of heartbreak and a lot of burnout and, and a lot of exploitation along the way to that road. And there has to be something else that you would find every bit as fulfilling or more fulfilling that can make use of uh, the real skills that you have uh, that will not perhaps um, have so much, so much pain along the way. I'm going to be including a link to all the articles that you sent to me, even if we didn't necessarily yeah. touch on them because they're so good. I, I liked my homework for today, <laughs> but okay. before we get to the recommendation segment, is there anything sure. you really want to make sure we mention before we do that? Yeah, one of my mentors in graduate school uh, is named Charles Matthews, Chuck Matthews, and he's an extremely wise and good and funny person. Uh, and a year and a half ago, he had an essay in uh, Inside Higher Ed about exactly everything that we've been talking about. And um, he breaks down the elements of an academic an academic life really into four categories, job, career, vocation, and life. And he, in that essay, he kind of explores the various ways that these things can all conflict with each other, but ideally they should be able to line up. Um, and I absolutely recommend uh, every reader, uh, sorry, every listener read uh, that essay. And, and actually your life has been a little bit, it's yeah, been taking the back seat. I uh, am an academic. I'm also married to an academic. For the last couple of years, we've been uh, teaching at different colleges in different states. I mean, this is just not sustainable. I mean, we cannot be happy people um, <laughs> continuing to commute several hours to see each other on the weekends. So yeah, I am in the fall. I'm taking some unpaid leave in order to, well, you know, be married. Um mm -hmm. And to, to do some other, you know, writing projects. So um, keep on the lookout. You you have not heard the last from me, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> now is the time in the show where we get to the recommendation segment. And I'm going to just quickly say I got to go to see a movie with my husband. And we have not been in a movie theater since I think before both of our children were oh, born. Right. I think yeah, it's been a long time. And it was a delightful one. It's Pixar's most recent movie called Inside Out. It's about mm -hmm. an 11-year-old girl, Riley. She moves from the Midwest to San Francisco. And it's all of the emotions that exist inside of her. They become characters in the movie. There's joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And they all attempt to help Riley navigate these changes with her move. It's a delightful story. And we would not probably bring our kids. They're too young for this kind of a movie. But it was fun, too, in the theater because there were all the little kids in there who add their little <laughs> sound effects, which uh, made it that much more fun to watch. So, All right. Sounds great. And what would you recommend? Uh, yeah, I would recommend um, uh, really on our the topic uh, that we've been talking about, in addition to Chuck Matthews' essay, um, for acad any academics thinking about their careers, uh, there's been a great series of articles on Chronicle Vitae by Melanie Nelson. Um, they address productivity, career decisions, uh, the applicability of academic skills to non-academic careers and vice versa. Uh, and her uh, essays have been really interesting, really helpful in thinking about things like time use and um, setting boundaries around your work. 
if I can add one little bit more yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. recommendation, uh, it's a book called Refuse to Choose uh, by Barbara Sher. Uh, and it's about people like me who have a lot of different interests and struggle uh, with the narrow focus that so much academic work demands. Um, so if any listeners are uh, find that they're working on a lot of different projects at once and feeling frustrated, this might be a good book to read. Well, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on the show. You sent me an email suggesting some guests and I am going to pursue those. But I also said, hey, you're on my list of people that I want to invite on the show. It was so great getting to talk with you today about something so significant, finding meaning in our work. Thank you very much. I I appreciated getting the invitation and, and it was a fun conversation. Thanks once again to John Malesic for being on today's show and sharing about finding meaning in our work. And if you would like to comment on today's episode, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 54, as well as getting all the links to the great articles that John shared about and also our recommendations. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update, that's where you don't have to remember to go to the website to look up all the links. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And you'll also receive a copy of Ed Tech Essentials, 19 tools that'll help you incorporate technology into your teaching and productivity. Thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to catching you next time.